0: The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. I'm not much of a movie watcher, but I do enjoy a good movie. And Over the years, one of the movies that really stood out to me was a movie called Ladder 49. It's uh, about a firefighter named Jack Morrison, and the story begins with uh, him trapped in a burning building with a broken leg. He just got done rescuing somebody, fell through a floor. He's trapped in a burning building. And the uh, deputy chief arrives on scene. Uh, Mike Kennedy, who's played by John Travolta. <clears throat> and they're trying to come up with a rescue operation. And as they're trying to come up with the rescue operation, the rest of the movie is basically a flashback to Firefighter Jack's life as he reflects upon uh, meeting his wife, getting married, having kids, getting promoted, all these great events in his life. And in that, I think the story writer does a really good job of kind of drawing you in, drawing you into Jack's life, uh, celebrating his, uh, his joys with him, uh, weeping with his sorrows and difficulties and trials. And it provides this kind of emotional attachment where you say, oh, I really want to see him come out alive of this. And one of the things that really stood out to me in this movie, and this is why this movie has stood out to me, is that the end of the movie, he dies. They don't rescue him. And it's unexpected because I expected a happy ending. I don't watch movies to become more sad. I I watch movies to distract myself from all the sadness. But to see that and see it come to a sad ending, that's kind of disappointing. But in a way, it's actually more in line with reality. Because we expect uh, all these stories from Hollywood and other stories written to end on a happy ending. That's kind of what we expect. But that's not the way life turns out. Life is often filled with difficulty. Things don't always happen according to the way you had hoped. We face sickness and death and dying. And so, in reality, the sad ending is more in line with our experience than the happy ending. And while this story here in Esther is in line with Hollywood and in line with the happy endings that we see, that's what I mean by in line with Hollywood, the happy endings, um, it's not really life. And this is why this story really stands out. And this is one of the issues that the Jews faced under uh, Hitler. So during the time under Hitler, the, the Jews actually read the book of Esther because they were hoping that God would rescue them like he rescued the Jews under Haman. And Hitler actually banned the book of Esther during that time, and there was severe punishment if they were found in possession of it. So they committed themselves to, to memorizing this book. So they all really focused on this book, and they were hoping for a happy ending. And deliverance did eventually come, but it wasn't until they saw many of their loved ones face the gas chamber There's even one really sad, uh, emotional story I read of uh, these Jews. They had a really, really rough day of forced labor, only to walk out and see a young boy hanged. And because of that, that's real history. Of course, so is Esther. But that's the more common experience. And because of that, they started to ask the question, where is God? Why didn't he show up? We've read the book of Esther, why didn't God show up here? And that was a question that a lot of people were asking during that time frame that really led to a lot of bad theology that God suffers with with them. God couldn't help it. He just he really wanted to see it and but just couldn't help it. But when you look at the book of Esther and see this incredible happy ending, you start wondering What explains it? Can we expect that in our own life? If we trust God enough, will our life eventually go well? Suffering will end? We will receive instant justice? What explains the happy ending in Esther? Well, there is actually a happy ending for Christians. It won't be in this life. It won't be in the life to come. And that's what the story of Esther points to. And so I want us to see three pictures of our true happy ending in the Gospel. First is victory, second is celebration, and third is exaltation. First, the victory. We begin in verse 1 where five clauses are stacked up. And this is to provide some suspense, but also I think it's to show how stacked the odds were against the Jews. It says, now in the twelfth month, you say, yep, that's the month that the enemy planned to kill the Jews to annihilate them, which is the month of Adar. Like, yep, that's the one, the twelfth month. On the thirteenth day of the same, like, yeah, yeah, that's the fateful day. That's that's, uh, what the story has been leading up to. When the king's command in Edith were about to be carried out, like, yes, I know that I've, I've read this story so far. Tell you know, tell me what happened on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them. Like yes, we've been hearing this. Yes, what's what's uh, what is going to happen? And so all of that leads up to the end of verse one. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And I want you to notice that. These were not innocent victims just obeying the king's command. Rather, they hated the Jews. They hated God's people. They wanted to kill them. They hoped to gain mastery over them. Uh, the Hebrew word gives the sense of kind of waiting for this day in expectation. Finally, this day is here. We want to do what we, ha- our hearts have wanted to do. But we see a wonderful reversal occur. Another poetic reversal. When the enemies of God's people hoped to gain mastery over them, the very opposite occurred. And then some of the details about what happened are spelled out. Verse 2 says, uh, No one could stand against them. And think about that. That's quite something because here they are in exile. Why are they in exile? Because they could not stand against their enemies. So here they are amidst their enemies, and their enemies could not stand against them. No matter where in the empire of all the provinces, their enemies could not stand against them. It shows that this is the hand of God. Verse 5 says that the Jews struck down their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Verses 6-10 through say that in Susa they killed 500 people alone, And verse 16 says that 75,000 of their enemies perished at their hands. And again, the Scripture keeps emphasizing of those who hated them. So again, these are not some some innocent people just minding their business or saying, you know, we're just trying to obey the king. They could have joined them, actually, as we saw at the end of chapter 8. Rather, they said, we hate you and we want to kill you. And the Jews defended themselves. This is a side note. I think this is another biblical support for self-defense. Protecting and preserving one's life, including the life of others, even in war. Now, the king was quite impressed with this. You see in verses 11 through 12, that very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? So, 500 people being slaughtered in in a day, especially in a time before guns and explosives, is quite impressive. And the text indicates that the king is impressed and exclaims this. 500 men? What then have they done in the rest of my provinces? And this could be said in the sense of loss. What have I lost? The king is saying. But I think it's probably surprised at how many people rose up against the Jews. And so the king, seeming to detect that more action is required because of how many enemies they actually had, he goes on to allow Esther to ask another request. And Esther responds in verse 13, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow Also, to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So Esther essentially asked for a day's extension to uh, this edict about fighting against their enemies. In addition to that, the ten sons of Haman—I'm not going to say their names again. Once is enough. Uh, Had been killed, and so she asked them to be hanged on the gallows. And this reveals that they did not die in honor, but they died as a curse. And this is, what, this is how you depict somebody dying as a curse, is you hang them. In this, we see that this was a holy war. It's a war against religious enemies. Hanging them on gallows is part of holy war that reveals that their enemies are cursed. And also part of holy war is to not take the enemy's spoil. And even though they had a right to it, According to Mordecai's decree, they did not take any of it in all the provinces throughout the empire. And this holy war goes back to the battle between the two seeds in the storyline of the Bible. Back in Exodus, the Amalekites rose up to attack God's people. And God says, therefore, I'm going to have war with Amalek, and I'm going to blot his name out. Well, when Israel had its first king put in place... Saul, or the first king Saul, God told him, go and wipe out the Amalekites. Don't take any of their spoil, destroy everything, all of them. And Saul mostly did it, except he took some of the spoil, and he allowed Agag to remain alive. He failed in that commission. However, the Israelites did the opposite. They did not take any of their spoil, and they blotted out Agag's line. Remember, Haman was an Agagite. We we read that. That is, he's in King Agag's line, uh, in the line of the Amalekites. And now his seed is utterly blotted out, because all ten of his sons were killed and shown to be cursed. And this all points really to the spiritual realities of the enmity between the two seeds. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Mordecai in the godly seed is targeted by the ungodly seed. However, the fall that he meant for Mordecai becomes his own fall. Now that Mordecai has risen to great power and prominence, we see that in verses 3 and 4, all his people have victory. And this is what we see with the seed who would come after Mordecai. Satan struck his heel by having him betrayed to the death of the cross, through his children bringing false witness. However, that turned out to be the crushing of his head. Putting him to open shame through Christ, open shame on the cross. Sin, death, and the devil were defeated by Christ who took the curse, who was for our sin, and upon Himself. And this, of course, was to the demise of His terrible enemies, and and ours as well. And now we have the victory because of the exaltation of the true and better Mordecai. We go out and we fight our enemies. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not a physical battle against humans, but against the kingdom of darkness. Our weapons are not battle shield and sword or guns and explosives in this holy war, but the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As we fight against our own remaining sin, and the lofty arguments raised up against the truth. And there is coming a day when all our and God's enemies are going to be utterly defeated. And of course, in the meantime, we, we pray for them. We want to see them come to Christ. We want to see them, as we see at the end of Esther 8, come and join us rather than be destroyed by Christ in the end. But Christ will destroy His enemies Ultimately, Satan and his kingdom of darkness will not be able to stand against God and his people. Now, a second picture of our true happy ending in the gospel is the celebration. Verse 17 says that on the 14th day of the month, the Jews in the provinces outside of Susa rested and feasted. And because of that extra day of battle, the Jews in Susa did it on the 15th day of the month. And Mordecai made this an official holiday among the Jews. We see in verses 20 through 21, and Esther in verses 29 through 32 confirmed this with her own letters. And the reason for this holiday is stated in verse 22. It says, As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. So this holy day is a feast and great celebration and recognition of getting relief from their enemies. And this is what God promised His people when they were to enter the land of Canaan. He said, you will get rest from all your enemies. And of course, that didn't work out ultimately because it was a type of what was to come. But this celebration is a celebration of rest from their enemies and a day turned from sorrow. Into gladness. And they call this new observance Purim. A Purim is simply just a, the, the uh, plural form of Pur. And Pur doesn't refer to a cat, uh, it refers to dice, where uh, the so called divine intervention of the gods is called upon by this rolling dice. And that's what Haman did. Haman said, I'm going to call upon my gods, I'm going to get my God's divine intervention against the Jews. And it showed. that that was not going to work because there's only one true God, and He is God. And so they named it this, I think, even in spite of what their enemies tried to do. But it points back to the destruction that their enemy determined for them, but how they were delivered from their enemy and the sentence of death. That is what this celebration is about. And all of this foreshadows the happy ending we have in the gospel we will one day finally have rest from all our enemies. Sin, death, and the devil. No longer will there be the curse. No longer will there be tears. No longer will there be death. No longer will there be temptations towards sin. No longer will we face harassment from the devil. Revelation tells us that after our great king brings final defeat in all our enemies, we will sit down for the great, Marriage supper of the Lamb, that great banquet, that eternal celebration and feast. We will have one great eternal celebration, having gained final rest and relief from all our enemies forever. The third picture of our true happy ending in the gospel is this exaltation that we see with Mordecai. And we read of Mordecai's exaltation in chapter 10. However, in this account, we also read something that doesn't seem to fit. That seems kind of like an odd inclusion. We see in verse 1, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. So the story comes to a close. Uh, There are so many happy details to this happy ending. But like a fly in the ointment, we read... Admits these happy details of a happy ending about a tax being imposed on everyone. Now, I don't know about you, but having a tax imposed does not sound very happy. Who likes paying taxes? Well, it is not so happy, and it's meant to stand out from this happy ending. You see, everything had been reversed for the Jews. They went from under the sentence of death To being delivered, under the threat of their enemies, to conquering their enemies. Mourning to rejoicing, despised to highly honored. In their kingdom, there's a great reversal. And yet, here's the one reversal that Scripture gives regarding the pagan Persian Empire imposing taxes. Back in chapter 2, King Ahasuerus gave a remission for paying taxes in celebration of Queen Esther. But now the reversal is to impose taxes again. The empire is about itself. King Ahasuerus remains the same self-focused and self-centered man that he has always been. The kingdoms of this world are, are not our friend. And I'm not saying you know, don't pay taxes, but but we see this reversal here. It's those who are not of the kingdom of darkness, beloved. We are not to be like this. We are not to be focused on ourselves, focusing on what we can receive. Rather, we are to be generous, focusing on what we can give. And this is actually part of the Jews' holiday, Puri. We see in 922 that they were to give gifts to one another and even provide for the poor. But then the kingdom of this world is much different. They took for themselves. We are to be people who are generous and eager to bless. We should not only bless with our material possessions, but also our gifts and talents. And even be able to fix things for others and, and help uh, people move. And, and here's one area that I think sometimes we can overlook. Friendship. We are to be generous to those who are socially poor. Those who may not give as much to us, we are to still give to them, even our even our friendship. In any case, that the king's actions is much different than Mordecai's. Verse 3, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his, of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So, Mordecai was highly exalted. However, he used that exaltation not to take, not to impose, but to bless. He sought their welfare. He used his position for good, for the blessing of others. And he spoke peace to all his people. He comforted them. He assured them of peace. He did not stir them up with bad news or a bad report. He was no tyrant. Who put them under a burden? Rather, he promoted to them things for their comfort, joy, happiness, and rest. Brothers and sisters, this is a great reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has been exalted to the right hand of the King of Kings, the eternal King, God Almighty. And he uses his high position for the blessing of us, his brothers, for our welfare for our benefit, for our good. He assumed our humanity to be a man of sorrows, clothed in sackcloth and ashes, as it were, suffering his whole life. And this great suffering culminated on the cross where he was shamefully put to death, wearing a crown of thorns, hung on a tree, becoming a curse for us. But he did this for us. He suffered shame and condemnation for us so that we would never taste it before God. But He has been high and exalted. He was raised from the dead. He is seated in the highest position there is, given the name above every name. But in His exaltation, He serves us. He always lives to make intercession for us. He is our advocate who pleads for us when we fall into sin. And who else can speak any greater peace than Him? He came and preached peace to us who are far off. He has declared to us the, tidings of, the glad tidings of salvation that our sins are forgiven, that we do not stand condemned, that we can never stand condemned because He has paid for all our sins. Beloved, because of this, because He first loved us and has given us His peace, we love Him. We have His peace in us. How can we not love Him? How can we not but live for Him. How can we not but love Him by loving His body and seeking the blessing and welfare of His body? And because we have this great brother and friend in high places, the highest place there is, we can trust Him. We can trust Him when it seems like everything's out of control. While He seems hidden from our sight. Remember the book of Esther, the theme is hidden. Her name means that. God's name is not mentioned in this. It's when God seems hidden and things are out of control. We see that He is working out His sovereign plan, even in the smallest details, bringing everything to the culmination of a happy ending for His people. And we can trust that no matter what we experience or see in this life, we will have a true happy ending, the ultimate happy ending. All our spiritual enemies will finally and forever be defeated. All the curse will be gone. We will finally have the eternal rest that our soul longs for, where we have that great and everlasting feast with our King, and his fame and his kingdom will have no end. As we forever adore our exalted King, who laid down his life for our welfare and have secured. For us, everlasting, true, and eternal peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you, though we don't always see you and don't understand how you can be working out things for our good, yet you are. Even in the dark times, even when it seems like your face is hidden, you are just as much in control. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We ask that we would cling to it. We thank you for Christ, our brother, friend, and Lord, in the highest place, using his exalted position for our welfare, peace, and good. Thank you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.